Hello, and welcome back to the JPO Podcast. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and today we'll be covering the July 2020 print issue of the journal. Hopefully everyone's staying healthy out there, as the pandemic unfortunately seems to be taking some steps in the wrong direction. Thanks to everyone for all the work you do and the risks you take as healthcare workers. And with no further ado, we'll jump into the content. We've got two interviews with authors. First up, I'm going to hand things over to my co-host, Julia, to sit down with Dr. Todd Milbrandt and discuss a very thoughtful recent article that grew out of the U.S. News & World Report rankings that are probably increasingly familiar to us, probably way too familiar to some of us. And it's a effort that will hopefully make those criteria a little more evidence-based for all of us. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here today with special guest Todd Melbrandt from Mayo Clinic. We're going to chat today about his paper, Does Shorter Time to Treatment of Pediatric Femoral Shaft Fractures Impact Clinical Outcomes? Dr. Melbrandt, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. I'm looking forward to talking about this paper. Perfect. Well, I know this has been a controversial topic, so I'd like to start out with a little bit of background. Um, the U.S. News and World Report metrics, which purportedly measure quality, um, such as the 18-hour cutoff for treatment of femoral shaft fractures, has pressured some changes in treatment algorithms for certain injuries. So, you know, just to kind of start off with, do you see this as a positive or a negative? And what metrics do you see as the biggest challenges to meet? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that uh, that's a great question and kind of gets to the heart of why we did this paper to begin with. I think it's good for us to be measured by some stick and I th- because just living with our blinders on is never going to let us improve our quality of care of kids. And we're still learning how to do that in modern medicine. I mean, quite frankly, we are in, an, in our infancy in the way that we judge quality of care. Um, especially in pediatric orthopedics, uh, I think that we're just learning. And, you know, I, uh, this study came out of my frustration of having to fill out the U.S. News and World Report um, form, um, and not because I was filling it out, but mostly because, for example, uh, the child would be admitted at 6 p.m., and we would get to them at 1 p.m. the next day, which was like 19 hours, and then, then you know, because of that, that child was considered, quote, a bad outcome within that U.S. News Report framework. So part of this came out of my frustration, but then also I was curious to say, well, you know, maybe they're right. I don't know where 18 hours came from. We should look at what happened. And so I think that was uh, from that that this this paper kind of came about. And I think that the other part of that question was, um, what, how does this, the, the challenges that this creates for us? And I think that the, the 18 hour metric for us, we found in this paper not to really have much, uh, from a clinical outcome standpoint, have much effect at all. Uh, so in terms of their pain and outcome and infection rate or anything else that we could like search through in the medical chart, from a clinical outcome standpoint, we couldn't get to. The only big difference, and I would have to say this may be what they're trying to get to, was that the children who were treated in less than 18 hours were able to go home on average about a day earlier than those that did not. So our length of stay overall was less, but that's because we kept them in the hospital. They came in the night before, and they were done that day and 
that we didn't feel comfortable with sending them home that exact same day that we had operated on them. So then they would spend two nights in the hospital. And so I guess from that standpoint, it could be looked at that, well, maybe this is a valid outcome. But for me, you know, some of this is timing. And this is another sneaky way, in my opinion, of basically asking the same question twice within the U.S. News and World Report. So U.S. News and World Report also asked, do you have a trauma room? that uh, is available uh, for a first start every day. And this is kind of another sneaky way of basically asking that same question, which really works well, I think, for large groups that have a consistent volume of trauma because they can then say, yes, every day we will have at least one, if not four, traumas to take care of the next day. And it makes sense for us to put resources towards that. Here at Mayo, we have four people in our group and for just for an example, we have four people in our group and our trauma in the wintertime is about one quarter of that of our trauma in the summertime. And so just from a logistical standpoint and waste standpoint, we don't want to staff a complete operating room when maybe or maybe not we would be able to use that. And so that's kind of uh, what their point was, which I understand, but we couldn't find any direct clinical correlates besides the length of stay. Yeah. And I think that's a really helpful finding from your study is that that length of stay was really the only difference that you found in your cohort. And um, for example, here in Colorado, we do have a trauma room, but even with the trauma room, sometimes we don't meet that 18 hour because as you say, the kid comes in at 6 p.m. and maybe they're fourth case after three supercondylars. And the challenge I think is that some of these metrics may push people to operate overnight if they're trying to meet those metrics. And uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, you know, whether you think, you know, does going to the operating room with maybe the B team at night, uh, is that worth meeting all the metrics from us news and world? Yeah, I, I would totally uh, echo those feelings because, uh, in my opinion, the answer to that question is easily no. And it's not only the B team in terms of the staff who might, may or may not know the R instrumentation and R usual. It's also the B anesthesia staff who may be, like in my case, an adult anesthesiologist who is covering for any emergency overnight. So we have those safety concerns. And then C, It's my own B team in my own head where if it's two o'clock in the morning and that day I've done a 12-hour spine and now it's two o'clock in the morning, I can guarantee you that I am not the same person as I would be the next day. And so physician wellness has now become a big part of this too. And if I can't really prove a clinical outcome that makes it better for the patient, then maybe my outcome is one that we need to consider or a surgeon's outcome needs needs to be played into that. And and maybe we look at some, like, I think one of your other questions was, you know, well, how else are we going to make these measurements? And, you know, I, I don't envy the U.S. News when we report group. They're trying to find differences amongst all of us to then place us into columns. I get it. That's their job. But maybe we ought to really be focusing, even as a society, on what are those measurements and is length of stay really one of those things that we're super important about or do we want to really look at pain control, blood loss, and surgeon outcomes too uh, in all of that, you know, surgeon wellness at those facilities. Yeah, those are great points. I think physician wellness is something that it should probably look to be looked at as a quality metric as well. And um, speaking of surgeons, you know what what would your advice be to our listeners on how 
we as surgeons can influence how these national ratings are scored or or be involved in this scene that seems to be more and more dominating how our practices are judged. Yeah. So when I was going through this, I started hearing from many of my other friends, including uh, Kevin Shea, who's plugged into a lot of this um, measurement stuff across the United States. And it's coming for us one way or another. I mean, if it's not U.S. news, um, it's things like uh, consumer reports who are going to give doctors grades. And I think that it behooves us as a group of people in pediatric orthopedics to define what those are, or it's going to be things that are not relevant, like uh, like a distinct 18-hour rule. To me, this really ought to be, is it, was it done within the next day? Could you get it done the next day, or could you not get it done the next day? Not some arbitrary hour content. Your question was, how do you get more involved? Well, I think this is like the primary role, in my opinion, of... Uh, our society, you know, Posna specifically uh, and has been uh, working on at least the criteria with Kevin's uh, QSVI group to try and come up with the right measures so that then we can then go to our national reporting agencies and say, these are the things you really ought to be measuring and not these arbitrary other random things. The, there is some hesitation, though. I have to say that Kevin talks about this at the board level. There is some hesitation. People don't like to be measured and because they think that they're doing fine and they don't want to hear if they're not or they don't want to hear that they're in the 25th percentile in speed or blood loss or infection rate or whatever, right? Because then they have to do action in their own in their own lives, but it's coming for us. And I think that actually, uh, younger the I would say the younger population that our surgeons within our group have been more uh, able to take this on than senior surgeons are. And maybe that's just you know from being in practice for thirty years, you don't really want to change, right? Uh, as opposed, to if you're new, you're like, well, if you tell me a new way to do it, and I can do that, and it makes my patients better, I will do it. I really think that that conversation needs to be had more at a broad level within POSNA and, and then be accepting when POSNA does try and do those initiatives to jump on board and say, yes, I'm okay to be measured. I think it's a good idea that we're measured and here's my data to put me in the database so that we can grow, grow that program. Because I, I think that that's what it's going to come down to. We're going to be POSNA certified at some level at some point so that we can say, yes, you are a safe hospital to practice in and you should be doing children's orthopedics um, because you are willing to put in your data and you're willing to be measured. And if you're not, then you're not going to get that seal of approval. Those are all great points of advice. And I would echo just you know encouraging people to get involved and to share their data as hard as it can be to be examined. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's something that's going to make us all better. And I also, of course, wanted to thank you for your work in this study, because I think evidence like this is what's going to be able to change those semi-arbitrary measures where, you know, somebody says, well, 18 hours, and we really should as a scientific community say, you know, what is about that 18 hours that's so special and what really makes a difference? So thank you so much for your work. And I would encourage everybody to continue to ask these questions and and gather this data and get involved. Totally. If you see openings for the QSVI committee in POSNA, jump on it. I mean, everybody needs 
that that committee structure has lots of people working for it, but that's a great way for you to get involved at POSEN level or even the academy level has quality improvement uh, committees. So get involved on a national level and, and you can steer the conversation. Thank you for calling me and, uh, and picking this paper too. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you, Julia, and thank you so much, Dr. Milbrandt. Next, I'm going to hand things over to our co-host, Craig, who is going to bring us a conversation with Dr. Jaime Gomez about early-onset scoliosis. Specifically, the authors brought in some concepts from adult spine surgery, like how we should think about the sagittal profile, and have given us some good information to think about in terms of maintaining the sagittal profile when we put in, quote-unquote, growth-friendly instrumentation. So welcome, everybody. Uh, this is Craig Lauer from University of North Carolina. Next, we'll discuss an article entitled The Effect of Spinal Pelvic Parameters on the Development of Proximal Junctional Kyphosis and Early Onset Scoliosis, Mean Four-and-A-Half-Year Follow-Up. This is from lead author Jaime Gomez from Montefiore Children's Hospital and senior author Ron El Hawari from Halifax, Nova Scotia, in conjunction with the Pediatric Spine Study Group. Uh, the purpose of this study was to characterize the rate of PJK after distraction-based growing rods in early-onset scoliosis patients and look at the influence of spinopelvic alignment parameters on PJK. For their methods, they found 135 children from PSSG with follow-up of greater than two years, and they defined PJK as being a proximal joint angle of greater than 10 degrees and at least 10 degrees greater than the pre-op measured angle. And they also defined proximal junctional failure as PJA that required extension proximally, which was based off surgeon preference and whether they extended above with revision growing rods or a spine fusion later. So I actually have Jaime Gomez here for the interview and I want to get his thoughts on this. So Jaime, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here, and it's uh, really great to talk about this study that was a big collaboration between a few uh, spine study groups. So before we get into the results, um, would you be able to discuss why you focused on PJK and or proximal junctional kyphosis and proximal junctional failure as important outcomes in this population? So um, you know, why did you think that those were important? Why did you decide on the 10-degree measure and is there a way to quantify you know, maximum kyphosis for the whole region above the construct, or is it really just that next most cephalad level that matters? Yeah, those are all, all great questions, Craig. Um, so, look, the idea of this project was really to try and get pediatric spine surgeons to think a little bit more about the phenopelvic parameters. And that's the nice thing about this paper that you see that some of the authors there are people that have worked on sagittal parameters in the adult population. Having Frank uh, Schwab and Virginie help us with this was really uh, trying to put those things together and look at it on the pediatric uh, group. We ended up looking at PJK specifically because that's, I think, what affects us on the pediatric world the most. On the adult world, I think they have more of a lumbar lordosis and flat back problems. We have more of the kyphosis problems in our little kids. So that's why it ended up being more focused on PJK. But this was really an idea of looking at the whole lateral x-ray and really trying to drive in those concepts that are very well set in the adult uh, deformity surgeons, that they understand it really well. And I think for us kids, we're not sure where it fits. So that's why we collaborated with Ron and, and, and Frank and Virginie and the rest of the authors. Um, 
you asked about the PJA and the PJK and PJF, and I think that was something that we really uh, talked a lot uh, amongst all of us. We need to be able to talk in the same language. And um, I think that for everybody, PJK is a different thing and PJF is a different thing. I think after doing a big background review, we def the definitions that we use here, I believe, are the correct and appropriate definitions that I think that every study should follow. Um, and those, uh, you know, the majority of the big literature and big papers out there on PJK and PJF really talk about this measurement above um, uh, 10 degrees, two levels above the instrumented level um, as 10, more than 10 degrees total, uh, it's called proximal junctional kyphosis, which is not a big deal unless there's a failure where means that you had to revise it. And those can be early or late. But I think framing that as are very, very clear in the methods that that's how, that's how we measure it, then you will be able to compare other studies. Um, so I think those were pretty, pretty important points uh, that you just brought up. Well, it's really interesting to hear kind of how the study got together and looking at the effect of spinal pelvic parameters, because you know, it's something that when you're dealing with thoracic fusions, I don't think that we think about sometimes as much as we should. And then you go to the SRS meetings and you mix with the adult deformity surgeons and that is the focus. Um, and it's, it's nice to have that, uh, that viewpoint. Um, let's get into the results a little bit. So, you know, looking at the whole cohort, 38% did have PJK based off that definition. And interestingly, 18% had the proximal junctional failure based off of the need for revision. Um, there were some interesting trends with that. I think the most interesting is the difference between maybe the rib-based constructs and the spine-based constructs. You know, we're always trying to figure out in the EOS world what the ideal thing is, and we don't have a lot of great answers. And one of the big questions is rib-based or spine-based. So what did you guys find there? So that, that was really interesting. Now, remember, this is published in 2020, but this is really work that has been going on for a long time. And the data was collected a while ago. And if you start looking a little bit deeper into the population, the majority of those rib anchor patients were vectors. And I think if we did the study now, uh, we probably would have a lot less rib anchors or those rib anchors would probably go with MTGRs or at least growing rods. And here, it's really a lot of vectors in there. So I think everybody has to keep in mind that this is what we are looking at. Having said that, we did find that when you go to the ribs, you have less PJK. Our only logical explanation is that maybe disrupting the spine on the top by your dissection or by getting in there with these little guys that you're doing T2, T3, T4 screws, maybe weakening that area, uh, maybe even not taking care of the interspinous process could be causing that weakness on the ligaments and the muscles on the spine and creating a little bit more of that BJ. Sure, sure. We, that's our theory, right? Um, and then when you go to the ribs, you're not even touching the spine, so the spine stay, stays like that. I'm not 100% sure if that's true, but that was kind of what on, we say on the discussion that might be the reason. So just be careful when you're going to the spine. Really protect that interspinous process. In my mind, I'm very careful with these kids on that. Okay. Especially yeah. if the kyphosis is big to start with. I, I too was surprised, and I'm, whenever I'm reading something like this, I try and rationalize it. The, the thing that you pointed out also, which may have played a role. Um, you know, the vector or the rib-based constructs didn't do as good of a job of correcting kyphosis within the construct. 
And so, you know, if you're all, if you're still somewhat kyphotic in the construct, then you don't have to be as kyphotic above to kind of get back to that pre-op sagittal balance, which apparently the patients are kind of prone to get back to. Um, do you think that the fact that maybe the rib-based constructs, at least in this historical cohort, weren't as powerful played a role? Yeah, and I think that that's also another another uh, reason for it. I'm sure there's not going to be one single reason, right? So I think that's absolutely true. When we put this, and something that is very important when we're putting MCGRs in, that the that we are making them very flat and the vector concept was to make them round. So I think you're right that, that if we don't correct too much of that kyphosis, then above it, they're not going to break. If we leave them a little bit round, it's probably better. And, and you face that problem and it really becomes an issue when you have the MCGR because it has that magnet and that magnet, we all know you cannot bend it. So you're forced to make them straight. So I'm concerned that when we put that MCGR, we might be seeing uh, the same thing. And and uh, I think Lindsay Andres has talked about this, and we all, I think, pay more and more attention. Just be careful and put an, uh, the magnet really in the thoracolumbar area. Don't go too high with it. Don't go too low because you'll either create a flat thoracic spine or a flat lumbar spine, and those two are going to probably come and bite us later on, uh, creating PJK or flat back, right? Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into that because I mean, the focus was the spinal pelvic parameters and, um, you know, rib base or spine base, you didn't really see a relationship to proximal junctional failure, you know, one or the other didn't lead to more revisions higher up. So, you know, we could argue how important that is, but you did see relations with proximal junctional failure in some of the spinal pelvic parameters. You know, you point out the PI or the pelvic incidence lumbar lordosis mismatch are greater than 20. That's a big no-no in the adult literature. And you found an association there with proximal junctional failure. It sounds like what, what's your kind of overarching theme when you got with the rest of your co-authors about this? Yeah, I think that it is after a lot of work on the ISSG, which is that other study, the adult study group, and, you know, they have this long paper discussing spinopelvic parameters that maybe residents have a hard time going through. I think an easy and very simplistic way of summarizing it was looking at that PILL mismatch, right? And if you have more than 10 degrees, then it could create a problem for their quality of life. So we try to make an effort to make this palatable for surgeons to say, what is the issue with the PILL? And what we found is that keeping it within 20 degrees, we know that kids have a lot of variability. Majority of our kids were ambulatory. I think this changes if you're going to non-ambulators. But in ambulatory kids, keeping it within 20 degrees is a good idea. So I always measure the PI, and I'm going to think about how much lordosis I put in, because if I'm way off, again, because the magnet is too low now that we're doing more magics, um, or because I didn't put enough uh, lordosis, that will likely make the patient have a higher risk of PJKing later. If I make a flat back on the bottom, the kid will probably uh, uh, tend to go in kyphosis. And, and I think that that's something that I pay a lot of attention, especially in these kids that you usually end up going uh, pretty low on the lumbar spine, majority of them when, when you're putting a uh, growing rod. So in my mind, always measure PI and always at least make a big effort to try and match that lumbar lordosis. So in very simple terms, if the PI is 50, you don't want that lumbar lordosis to be 
10, right? You want it to really get between 30, 40, 50 if you can, uh, because that's going to prevent PJK. And I think that's a big message of this paper, uh, just to pay attention to that lumbar uh, area. Because that's what we can really affect. The other thing that we found is that big kyphosis will have a risk of having PJK, but that's how the patient presents. So you cannot alter that. Sure, but you can sure. definitely alter lumbar lordosis. So just work with that one. Okay. Let me um, kind of propose a hypothetical that'll maybe help solidify some of these concepts. So let's say we have a patient that, you know, for whatever curve characteristic in the above, you know, we think that our lower instrumented level should be kind of L1, L2 for the growing rods. So in that, in that respect, um, if they're tall enough for a magic or a traditional growing rod, whatever it may be, you know, it sounds like your recommendation is do what you have to do to preserve the lumbar lordosis um, or at least account for it uh, in that construct. How do you, how do you physically do that? Um, if you're not really instrumenting the lumbar spine? That's, that's uh, very interesting, uh, Craig, because I think that this really applies when you're going distal to L3. If you are not going distal to L3, you're not going to alter those parameters. And we wrote a paper that is actually being published looking at AIS population. Mm-hmm. And what I did or what we did was compare the selective fusion patients with the long uh, fusion patients. And what we found is that uh, you know, what I thought we were going to find is where patients on long time ago is that the long fused patients would be having a flat back and that they were going to have a problem. What we found is that the selective fusions, so if you fuse L2 and above, you do not alter the spinopelvic parameters of those kids. So the lumbar lordosis stays the same, uh, that PILL doesn't change. But if you go to L3, you do affect it. And what we found was that we actually were not making them flat it was actually that they were putting too much lordosis Hmm. now this was a select group of surgeons a couple of surgeons that some of them had done adult uh, deformity fellowships so i think that what was happening is that they were thinking about that flat back and they put too much curve on the lumbar lordosis i'm not sure what that's going to do but what i do know is that if you go below l3 and distal then is when we are affecting them so uh, if you go high, I think less of a stress. Mm-hmm. Be careful with the kyphosis. But if you mm-hmm. go below L3, watch that lumbar lordosis. I think okay. that's a message. That's a great point. Um, and what if you what if you go to the pelvis in that patient? Let's say a non-ambulatory patient. You know, if you're not, you know, we're not obviously attaching to the spine in the lumbar area, and you're really distracting posteriorly. It's I don't know how, or, or I'll get, I guess I'll open it up to you. But how can you ensure that you maintain that lumbar lordosis? I, I think it's harder, right? Because if you have just screws at four, five, and one, and one, or five, one, and pelvis, or something like that, which sometimes we do, you're not going to be able to control that lordosis as much. But I think that is still the bend on the rod is important, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. even if there is not an anchor grabbing L2 to the rod, you're still putting that rod in, in some kind of, with some kind of turn. So matching that turn to whatever your PI is, is I think our responsibility is what we can do. Now, what the spine is going to do afterwards in the places where there's no anchor, I'm not sure, but just you making the effort of bending that rod the right way and not, not making it flat. I think it's, it's kind of the key part. Perfect. Yeah, I totally agree. 
Um, <clears throat> let me just ask if you, let's say you had one of these patients that you now, um, you decide their lower insulin vertigo is going to be L3 or something. What would you do in terms of rib based or spine based anchors? Do you vary or what's your preference? <laughs> I will tell you that my answer is put a lot of anchors proximally that okay. I think we've learned, yes. um, over and over. Right. I think that we couldn't find the amount, the number of anchors, but to me, I think there's going to be, there's been enough evidence that putting a lot of anchors, uh, is number one, where you go. Uh, personally, I tend to go to the spine if it's a spine problem, and I tend to go to the ribs if there's a rib problem. So if the ribs are going down for some kind of uh, uh, muscular dystrophy or there's fusions on the ribs or things like that, sure. I might go there. If it's just a pure scoliosis, I tend to not touch the chest because I feel that going to the chest might create more scar tissue and their lungs could be affected. That's uh, personal. So I tend to go to the spine, but I'm just very respectful of the midline and try to expose, you know, get a little uncomfortable when put it out of those proximal screws. But I still tend to go to the spine uh, uh, a bit more, even though, you know, here we said uh, that there's maybe more PJK. Well, like you said, there's more to the story than just uh, yeah, one, yeah, just one yeah, paper exactly. as well. Um, well, uh, thanks so much. You know, as I was listening to this, I thought of a few different future directions, maybe you can point us, but you know, obviously we've got a magic cohort coming through PSSG. It'll be interesting to see how that affects this. I'm interested to see how this cohort does once they're all actually fused in the future and how this played into their long-term outcomes. And if, and I was also wondering about, uh, you know, patient rated outcomes and if that was looked at and if, uh, if they were affected by rib based or by the spinal pelvic parameters. Yeah, we're actually, uh, you, you're seeing the future. We're actually uh, writing the paper now for um, quality of life outcomes in these kids. And uh, uh, we decided to do it as two separate papers because otherwise it would be too much here. But the data is there. You know, one of the nice things about the pediatric spine study group that was the merger of uh, two very uh, good uh efforts of collecting data. So it's really a, a big database that we take a lot of advantage and we are um, uh, eager to get more people involved. So for the young people out there, reach out to the PSSG. I think we're getting uh, the more numbers, the, the stronger we get. So um, uh, we are going to publish on it. And uh, what it's saying is that pretty much the same as what we said here, kids that don't have appropriate sagittal balance, their quality of life outcomes are decreased. So it matters because they get more surgery and it matters because the quality of life is affected. I agree with you. I think the PSSG is a great example of using the power of, you know, our broad networks to solve or not really solve, but at least work towards better outcomes for a difficult problem that doesn't come around as often as we need to, to study at a single center. Um, so thanks for all your efforts and thanks to all your co-authors. Uh, any, any final takeaways for our listeners um, about this paper? I think we touched on on the on the on the main things, you know, and and I think a, and a really really cool thing about this paper was that thing we spoke about that collaboration between adult spine and pediatric spine, um, people that maybe are trained in the adult world when they look into the pediatric world are a little shy about some of the things we talk about and vice versa. And I think we need to break those barriers because there's a lot of things that we know on the pediatric side that the adult guys don't understand very well and, and the other way. So 
try to break those uh, barriers. I think it's, uh, things like this come up out of it and, and, and it worked very well for this paper and for me. Yeah. Transferable lessons. Um, that's, it's a great effort. We really appreciate, really appreciate that. And, um, thanks for joining me today. Very good, Craig. Thanks for, thanks for having me and, uh, great job with the podcast. I think it's uh, really, really interesting to do things this way and it's the right time to do it. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Dr. Gomez. And thank you to all of our listeners. Please stay tuned. We'll be back next month with a new episode of JPO content. And in the meantime, we plan to bring you a bonus episode covering some more of the annual meeting content, specifically from the foot and ankle section. And if you're not already subscribed to the podcast interview with the PD Pod, please check it out. The upcoming episode features Dr. Lanky, which we are very excited about. See you next time. Mm-hmm.